This podcast is a part of Sphera, a collective of independent media outlets from across Europe. For more information, visit sphera-hub.com. It's been a busy week, Katie. Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but I was busy partying all weekend, celebrating Europe Day, uh, (laughs) elections in the UK, also very fascinating. And then the president of the European Commission, Ursula von der Leyen, became a grandmother. Did you see that? Oh, no, I didn't. Congratulations, Ursula. She does have like a million children, doesn't she? So I guess it's not surprising that one of them would eventually have a child of their own. Do you think she's going to be able to fit them into her busy schedule? Because like famously, she already like moved into the European Commission building so that she could be closer to work. Like, when's she going to see the baby? She's definitely not going to be one of these grandparents that looks after the baby one or two days a week. Unless they move the baby into the European Commission building. Maybe it's what she needs, a bit of a kind of reality, a bit of baby reality. She can bounce policy ideas off it. This sounds great. <laughs> anyway, how have you been? I've been all right. Uh, boyfriend of the show, Alex, is now out of hospital, which is very good news. So I'm mostly taking advantage of his recovery by eating the huge amounts of cake that people have given us. It turns out when you go to hospital, people buy you cake. So I've been helping him get through this massive cake backlog, which I think is actually really generous of me. That's really kind of you. You can also send some my way. I really won't mind. No. Cake in the post has like become a thing during the pandemic. Yeah, we did get sent two rounds of cake in the post. It's amazing. What an innovation. It's great. Although I'm always suspicious that it's going to be stale by the time it arrives. Best thing to come out of the pandemic. Definitely. Although another great thing that's happened in the pandemic is that we've all watched loads of television, which is why this week we're going to be talking about TV. Yay. There have been a few articles doing the rounds recently suggesting that Europe has finally found a shared common European culture thanks to the streaming platforms. Well, actually, mainly just thanks to Netflix. And later on in the show, we're going to be looking in more detail at how Netflix has actually changed television making in the EU. To help us, we'll be joined by Jérôme Duchesne, the head of CEPI, an organisation that represents independent producers in Europe. That's coming up a bit later on, but first... Who has had a good week, Katie? This is a story that was breaking just as we put last week's podcast out. So some of you have probably heard about it already, but it was too good not to mention. So I'm giving good week this week to France and Belgium for managing to avoid a diplomatic incident slash war, despite the uh, slightly awkward issue of Belgium inadvertently invading French territory recently. You say Belgium. It was a farmer, wasn't it? Spoiler alert. I'll get to that. Um, If you zoom in on the border between France and Belgium on Google Maps, you will find a little village called Erkeline, which is a very picturesque little village. It's got an old church. It's got a river going through it. All your usual historic village stuff. It's also home to a big chunk of stone that for 200 years has served as a marking point for where the border between France and Belgium actually lies. Okay, so it's one of those points on the border where the border is invisible. There's no wall or 
fence or anything. Yeah, exactly. The border is just in the woods at the edge of some farming land. And there's nothing really there except for this big stone that has sat there for 200 years. It actually has the date engraved on it, 1819. And on one side, it's got a big F for France. And on the other side, it has a big N for Nederland. Because, interestingly, uh, 200 years ago, Belgium didn't exist. So this rock originally marked the border between France and what was at the time, the Netherlands. We used to be neighbours, Dominic. Oh, I'm glad that Belgium is like a buffer zone in between us now. (laughs) It's probably for the best. Anyway, suffice to say that this rock had been happily sitting there for a very long time, until recently, when some local history nerds, I mean that in a nice way, members of the local history association who do like audits of these stones and they know the woods really well, one of them noticed while they were out in the woods, hang on a second, this rock is not where it normally is. And in fact, it wasn't where it normally is. It was 2.29 metres from where it normally is. So I kind of spoiled it already that there's a farmer who is involved in this, but how did this rock move? Well, this is the burning question. So when the story emerged last week, All the news reports were saying that what had happened was the farmer on the Belgian side was annoyed by this rock because it was right in the path of where he wanted to drive his tractor. So he said to himself, I'll just move this big rock over here and then I can drive my tractor past. Supposedly not knowing that in doing so he was potentially causing a diplomatic incident by making Belgium bigger and France smaller. You know, as the mayor of Echelin pointed out, this kind of thing often causes disputes just between neighbours. So it's really not a good idea to do it between entire states. So that was the original story that was being reported, that this Belgian farmer had just moved the rock because it was annoying. And that was what local officials on both sides of the border said had happened. However, in recent days, there have been some French language news reports saying that the unnamed Belgian farmer swears that he didn't touch the rock. So the plot thickens. Like, who would have moved this rock if not the farmer? It's a pretty big rock. Apparently it weighs about 150 kilos. So you would need something like a tractor to lift it. Hmm, suspicious. I wonder whether the farmer is just trying to save face. I think we should give him the benefit of the doubt. But it's just as well that he apparently had nothing to do with it because there would have been some pretty serious consequences if it was him and if he refused to move it back. Criminal charges, potentially. And the government might even have had to summon this International Border Commission that hasn't met since like 1930. So it all seems to have turned out okay. And actually, that is why I want to give this good week, because yes, this is obviously not a big deal in the end and nobody got hurt. And it's very silly to think that a farmer moving a bit of stone two metres could start a war or whatever. But there have been times in our history when this might have caused more tensions, I think. And I think it's really nice that it gets treated as a funny story these days. Both of the mayors on either side were joking about it. And the mayor on the Belgian side, David Lavoux, he said something that struck me as rather nice. He said, we've kind of forgotten that these borders are here. You can cross the border without realising it. And I think that's rather lovely. That is really lovely. Who's had a bad week? It's been a bad week for Prince Emmanuel of Liechtenstein after he was accused by environmental campaigners of killing the 17-year-old brown bear, Arthur, the largest bear in Romania and probably the largest in the whole of the European Union. Wow, he must have been massive then. Yeah, he was enormous. And the killing is said to have taken place in March. But the accusation that it was Prince Emmanuel of Liechtenstein, a prince who lives in a castle in Austria and is a part-time doctor, that bombshell accusation emerged in the past week in a report from the Romanian environmental group Agent Green. Does Agent Green ring a bell, Katie? We know Agent Green. We interviewed Gabriel from Agent Green a while back. 
Yes, he is the president of Agent Green, and he's actually the person who published this story. You can go back and hear our episode Loggerheads if you want to hear his voice from last year, um, where he talks about some pretty awful violence against environmental activists who are uncovering illegal logging in Romania's forests. But yeah, this international news event was Gabriel's work, and it exposes what seems to be quite a story with potentially quite serious implications for Prince Emmanuel. Sorry, but it's not 1870. Like, why are European princes still stalking the continent shooting bears? That's a very good question and one I've been asking as well. And they shouldn't really be, especially in Romania, because it is officially against the law to trophy hunt. And it has been since 2016, which is in line with the European Union's Habitat Directive, which gave the brown bear protected status. It's important legislation considering that Romania has the largest population of brown bears in Europe, more than 6,000 of them probably. But, and this is a big but, Trophy hunters seem to have been finding ways around the legislation, as is thought to be the case with poor Arthur. Mm. I'll give you an outline of what Agent Green think happened in this case. So they discovered that Prince Emmanuel did, in fact, have a license to kill a bear over four days in March, a license which he will have paid around €7,000 for which I have to say I think is pretty cheap for a prince living in a castle. But that's much of a muchness. Yeah, but they're terrible money pits, those castles, aren't they? The upkeep is just dreadful. That's true. That's <laughs> very true, yeah. Trust you to show empathy to this uh, prince. The license he had was a license that is meant to only be given out in exceptional circumstances. And in this case, it was to shoot and kill a particular bear that had been causing damage to some farms around the village of Ojdula, just on the edge of the Carpathian Mountains, where a lot of the Romanian bears live. So this is the one way in which bears are still sometimes allowed to be hunted. And it's meant to be an absolute last resort if they're threatening human life or repeatedly damaging property. Then they're first meant to try and relocate the bears, but if that doesn't work, the authorities can give permission for a local hunting association to kill the specific bear. The environmental activists think that the authorities granted this license too soon in this case and point out that there are many other solutions, fences, for example, or special breeds of protective dogs, neither of which seem to have been attempted. There's even actually a special pot of money for compensation to farmers who have had damage from bears to their property, which is approved for by the European Commission. In this case, a license had been granted after a small female bear had caused some damage multiple times in the village and the local hunting association decided to sell the license to the prince. Icky, perhaps, but they'd found a way to get around this law that is trying to stop rich people to hunt these animals. Everyone's a winner. Yeah, but the reason why this is such a big story is because it would seem that Prince Emmanuel didn't shoot and kill this one smaller female bear but a huge male bear, Arthur. And I'm not saying that we should protect big bears or male bears over small female bears. All bears are equal in my eyes. But the bear he was meant to shoot looked nothing like the bear he is alleged to have ended up shooting. And Gabriel Porn questions Prince Emmanuel's motivations, saying... It is clear that the prince did not come to solve the problem of the locals, but to kill the bear and take home the biggest trophy to hang on the wall. This is one of those things where I just don't understand aristocrats. Like, why would you want a dead bear 
hanging on your wall or as a rug or whatever. Like, I just don't think it would look nice. Yeah, I agree. I just don't understand trophy hunting. We clearly don't move in the right circles to understand it. But I think in some social circles, it's really like the cool thing to do, apparently, still. Very strange. So Arthur had never caused damage to property and was just not one of these problem bears that needed killing. So it's pretty convenient if the prince killed a bear that just happens to be one of the biggest trophies a trophy hunter could ever kill in Europe. In reading about the story, I discovered that there's this rather gruesome ranking system in the trophy hunting industry, and each bear gets a score out of 600 as to how substantial or impressive the kill is. And based on Gabrielle Porn's calculations, this bear, Arthur, would have a record-breaking score of 593 points out of 600. Ah, so Prince Emmanuel would shoot straight to the top of the rankings then. Yeah, it would seem so. Although his staff at the castle have responded to the allegations and deny that he killed Arthur, adding that there have been false reports and agitation since the story broke. And they also said that nature has been one of the fundamental concerns of the house and is a central element of the family's commitment to ecological and social sustainability. Oh, so they're like an eco-friendly monarchy then. Yeah, that do trophy hunting. Ugh, okay. Um, so is he going to be in trouble, this prince? Potentially. The Romanian police are investigating, and if it's proven that Emmanuel killed Arthur, then one of the outcomes could be a charge of poaching. And the case has made like quite big waves in Romania, and the environment minister went on TV and announced that from now on, they will only allow members of hunting organizations to carry out these authorized killings. This is hopefully a change that will stop the sale of expensive hunting or not so expensive hunting permits to trophy hunters. The European Commissioner for the Environment also indicated on Monday that they are closely following the investigation, placing further pressure on Romania to deal with this killing in a good and proper way. Romania were actually already given a formal warning last summer for not respecting their legal obligations to protect and manage conservation areas. So the European Commission is watching closely. But for now, it's definitely been a bad week for Prince Emmanuel von und zu Liechtenstein. If you enjoy hearing weird European stories every week about murderous princes and accidental border wars, among other things, there is a very easy way to ensure that we can continue making this weird podcast about those things, and that is to sign up to support us on Patreon. Patreon is a website where you can chip in a few euros or dollars or pounds a month. It has lots of currencies these days, actually. And we are hugely, hugely grateful to the people who do that because it means that we can keep making this show. Who are the latest amazing people to sign up and do that? They are Alexander, Karen Renee, Stephanie Mills, and Atsiri Gonzalez. Many thanks to you all. If you donate, you can get a voicemail from us. Uh, you can get a postcard. In fact, we recorded some voicemails this week, and Katie took to singing people's <laughs> names. So if that sounds like something that you'd like, then uh, yeah, why don't you go to patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast and donate as little as two euros or dollars or pounds a month also people are going to be like hey why didn't you sing my name no one's going to sign up this week now that you said that (laughs) 
you might have noticed that Dominic and I have been recommending rather a lot of television that we've been watching during the pandemic. Some people might call it unhealthy, but what else has there been to do? Don't judge us. Uh, One thing that I find quite comforting is that we are definitely not alone in our binging. Many people across this continent have been glued to the screen, either just for comfort or because there's literally nothing else to do. And something that has been kind of interesting to observe here in Europe is just how much we've been enjoying each other's television during lockdown, thanks to streaming services like Netflix, although if we're being honest, mostly Netflix. I mean, you and I are under pressure, Dominic, to watch Euro television because you came up with this stupid idea for a new segment called Isolation Inspiration, where we have to like come up with things to recommend constantly. But I think lots of people in both of our lives who don't think of themselves as like Euro people necessarily, even they've been enjoying shows like Money Heist from Spain and French series like Lupin and Call My Agent, right? Absolutely. It's funny you mentioned these names and it like takes me back in time to the different phases of our various lockdowns. Money Heist was like a particularly low point, I think. It's really crap TV. Oh, let's not go back to that. But yeah, the fact that Netflix and other streaming companies have been pumping out great series in different languages, that probably hasn't passed you by. There have been huge hit series like Lupin and Money Heist and Dark from Germany. But something you might not have been aware of is that Netflix and their rivals are actually legally obliged to create these series. Under this new EU law that was brought in three years ago, the streaming giants have to create 30% of their content in Europe if they want to operate here. We actually talked about it at the time, back in 2018, which is a sign that we've been making this podcast for too long. But since those heady days three years ago, it seems like this law has been, yeah, quietly helping to reshape what we Europeans watch on television. And maybe even, as Dominic said, contributing to something that looks very tentatively a bit like a shared European culture where we all enjoy the same things. And we love a bit of shared European culture on this podcast. So we wanted to find out a little bit more about how much this EU law has changed the television that we watch as a continent. Who better to ask than Jérôme Deschênes, the head of CEPI, which is the European Association of Independent Producers. And we had a great chat about our favourite thing in the whole world, aka television. Nowadays, people watching television in Europe are much more likely to see shows from all across the continent in various different languages. And one of the reasons for this is because of this new EU rule that came in in 2018 that meant that streaming platforms working here had to make at least 30% of their content in the European Union itself. Do you think this ruling has revolutionized television in Europe? It is a disruption of the uh, business model, definitely, because we are talking to a worldwide audience right now. But they change also things very positively. I mean, you were talking about the language, but now it's possible to have local TV series based on a local language, which can talk to everyone in the world. So they change that, because before that, the, uh, the national broadcasters were more comfortable with a dubbing, a pure dubbing of TV series and so on. So for the language, it's very cool and very great what happened. But they change also something else. They open a new market for uh, our producers. Because before you were talking only to national broadcasters who wanted to talk to a national audience only. So they were stressed by things which could be difficult to, to treat in TV series, for instance. But now 
with this new market, with this new competition, and I say it is possible for creators, authors, to write things which are more uh, sophisticated, maybe in a certain way, in order to talk to a worldwide audience. Yeah, I found myself watching, you know, series in Luxembourgish and all of these languages. It's mm. been a really cool experience, especially during the pandemic when, of course, <laughs> there hasn't really been many other forms of entertainment anyway. So has this news been like universally good news for the independent producers that you work with? Or is there a downside to it? What are companies like Netflix, these big streaming giants, what are they like to work with? The problem we are facing right now is the fact that these global players want to produce in Europe like they produce in the US, meaning the fact that they keep all the rights and it is for worldwide. So they challenge the uh, European model by the fact that they want to keep all the rights and they want to keep all the rights for their own market, which is the subscribed video on demand market. So if they want to keep all the rights, what does it mean? It means that the challenge we're facing is just the fact that Europe could be a big studio for extra European players. All the intellectual property right now is kept by these players. Even if they are investing by quotas in European production, European production could be considered legally as a service provider or pure service provider. It means you produce and you give all the rights to the extra European players. How does it work budget-wise comparing the kind of budget you would get from one of these streaming giants to a budget for a producer from their national broadcasting service? It's true that when you want to produce what we call IM TV series, it's impossible to be based only on the national market. Everywhere in Europe, when you want to have TV series with at least 1.5 million euros per episode, I'm talking about 52 minutes episode, the classical TV series you can imagine, you have to be with partners in Europe or in the world or whatever. So you have two solutions. The uh, international co-production you had before, and now, with these platforms, it's possible to have the platforms as a solution. Because when they pay, they finance all, and they want INTV series because they have a worldwide audience. So what we call the production value must be high in order to be a competitor of over US TV series and so on. So when you have to reach this amount, of course, your national market is not anymore able to finance it. And your national market is becoming weaker and weaker every year because of the competition of Netflix and all these uh, new players. Your traditional national broadcasters are suffering right now everywhere in Europe, especially the public broadcasters. You have to know that the public broadcasters are everywhere in Europe the basis of all the work of the European creation. But at the end of the day, the advantage of a European co-production is the fact that you keep the intellectual property rights and you keep the control of the distribution of your rights. You've talked about this cooperation between different broadcasters as a response to these streaming platforms. But why isn't there a European-wide streaming service. I mean, all these streaming services are American. 
And th- I find that a bit ironic, considering that now it's being described as this holy grail at creating shared European culture through Netflix and Apple TV. Why don't we have a European streaming service? Very good question. As you know, everybody has already a lot of subscription. So Netflix has arrived on that. And for sure now it's too late to have European champion. It's really too late. The place is not anymore existing for people. They have Netflix, they have sometimes Prime video. And you have to to keep in mind that it is also what was generated by these new arrivals. It's a war about the exclusivities. I mean, the exclusive rights are kept by more and more players. It means that it is more and more complicated for the works to circulate to other players, to other channels, and so on. So it is too late to have a European player on that. Maybe in five to 10 years, if the market is changing, it could be possible, but it is not the case right now. I was wondering, the fact that European producers are now looking beyond their borders, is that changing the way that the shows get written? Is it changing the cultural references and the jokes that you will see in the actual scripts? Because those kind of things are not going to be understood, perhaps, if it's a very French joke, for example, if you're watching it in Portugal. It's not easy to make a comedy for a a worldwide audience. Definitely the comedy is uh, things which are not easy to travel. So the comedy is the worst example because it's not easy to talk to everyone with a comedy. It's easier when we're talking about thriller. Uh, You have all in mind uh, the example of Casa del Papel. It's good for everyone. It's talking to everyone. When you have dark in Germany, it's for everyone. Even Lupin. When you see Lupin, it's for a large audience. You have a very good pictures of Paris. So in order to reach large audience, my best advice is more to say to you that you have to write a script based on thriller or based on <laughs> something which is more exciting because comedy will be the worst. Murders seem to work very well. Hey, murders is better, yeah. Murders is uh, <laughs> it's worldwide. <laughs> Do you think that a show like Lupin would have ever been made by the public broadcaster in France? Yes, this show could have been produced by the national broadcasters. But the cost of this production was complicated to reach for national broadcasters. That's why this TV series was produced by this platform. It's because national broadcasters were not able to reach this amount of production. So how do they react? It's pretty interesting to note that main national broadcasters in Europe now are organizing themselves in order to be able to co-produce big TV series, which could interest a large audience everywhere. I must say that a consortium created by France Television in France, but also RAI in Italy and ARDZDF in Germany. They organize what they call an alliance in order to say, okay, what are the projects international and or European projects on which we can reach the amount I was talking about, but all together. So now we know that there are the big projects. We had the first uh, Mirage co-produced between Germany and France. We will have Leonardo between uh, Italy and France. And uh, we will have also Le Tour du Monde en 80 jours, 
an adaptation of uh, Jules Verne. And so it will be big, high-end TV series. And this is globally the best reaction we could have on the European market against extra-European services. I think the elephant in the room here is that actually we created a shared European culture back in 2017 when we launched this podcast. <laughs> well done us. Thank you very much to Jerome for taking the time to dial in and chat to us from Paris. If you want to dig a bit deeper on this topic, there was a very interesting article about it in The Economist about a month ago. It's called How Netflix is Creating a Common European Culture. And I will post the link in the show notes. What have you been enjoying this week? Well, after going through quite a long period of only wanting to watch crap TV, I seem to be going through a new era of wanting to watch really serious films. Um, and after watching Collective a few weeks ago, I just watched Quo Vadis Aida, which is another of the Oscar Best International Feature nominees that also didn't win. Have you heard about it? Uh, remind me. It's a dramatization of one of the most horrific pieces of European history from the past 30 years, the Srebrenica genocide. And the film follows a school teacher from Srebrenica who is working as a UN translator whilst trying to protect the lives of her children and husband as the city comes under attack from the forces of the Bosnian Serb army under the military leadership of now convicted war criminal Ratko Mladic. It's not an easy watch, but it does take a really nuanced look at the failures of the Dutch UN peacekeeping forces, whose inadequacies had devastating consequences. This story is well known in the Netherlands and amongst Bosnians, of course. Uh, but if you don't know about this piece of relatively recent history, then I really, really highly recommend that you watch this film. You will probably cry a lot. I did anyway. But it's so well made, the acting is astonishingly affecting. And whilst it is without a doubt a difficult film to watch because of the topic, it does that amazing things that some of the best films based on real life tragedies can do. It makes the story really human. And it immersed me in the desperate situation at the UN camp outside Srebrenica where thousands of people were trying to find safety from an army that were on a brutal campaign of ethnic cleansing. I really hope that despite this pretty bleak description, as many people as possible watch this film, it didn't win the Oscar, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't watch it. I am going to go and do that. What have you been enjoying, Katie? A slightly different tone, but I've been very much enjoying Toxfig's Almanac 2021. Sandy Toxfig, Britain's favourite Danish person. If you're not British, but you've watched the iconic TV show, The Great British Bake Off, you will know her as the former host of that show. But she is also many other things besides a longtime broadcaster, funny person, general national treasure. I could talk about Sandy Toxfig for hours. Um, but I'm here to recommend her latest book, Toxfig's Almanac. I have to confess, I didn't really know what an almanac really was before I started reading this one. Do you know what it is? Oh, I knew you were going to ask me and no, I don't know either. <laughs> So it's kind of like a calendar that has information in it for days of the year that are like relevant to a particular subject. So you might have like a farmer's almanac that has weather patterns in it, stuff like that. Ah, so it's like when I have an almanac of 
seasonal vegetables. Exactly, that kind of vibe. But this almanac is very cool because Sandy Toxfig has basically used this format as an excuse to celebrate lots of women who have been kind of under-celebrated by history. So every day of the year, or most of the days of the year anyway, are like the birthday of one of these women or like some date related to their life. And uh, it's just these kind of really cool little potted biographies of really excellent women. And loads of them are European. For instance, Agna Dickey, the first female doctor in ancient Athens. Did you know that it was punishable by death for women to practice medicine in ancient Athens? No, that's completely insane, but also weirdly unsurprising. It wasn't such a great place in some ways. Um, but yeah, anyway, Agna Dickey, she went and studied in ancient Egypt, came back, pretended to be a man for years so that she could practice medicine. And eventually her cover got blown, so they put her on trial. But all of her patients rallied around her and were like, yeah, she's an amazing doctor and women shouldn't be killed for practicing medicine. And then everyone was like, oh, yeah, that is stupid. And they changed the law. Wow. Yeah, happy ending. Um, but yeah, it's a very enjoyable book and I really recommend it. Katie, do you remember that about a year ago we talked about this ingenious new design of green bus stops in Utrecht in the Netherlands? Mm, I kind of don't, if I'm being honest. Once again, we've been making this podcast for too long. There were these bus stops that like collected pollutants and dust and contained bee-friendly plants, among other many great things. Well, this is just one of many initiatives in Dutch cities that is meant to help bees. And it seems that these initiatives are doing some good. And we know this because there is a Dutch bee census for which 11,000 people participated in bee counting exercises this year. And it seems that the bee population in Dutch cities has stabilised. The researchers say that it's too soon to draw definitive conclusions, but the signs are good and they believe it is due to these initiatives and a growing awareness in recent years about the need to ensure that these vital pollinators can survive in cities. So alongside the green bus stops, there have been lots of green roofs planted, bee hotels everywhere on balconies and in parks, and the replacement of grass in public spaces with more bee-friendly wildflowers. This is just a little bit of good news after a pretty astonishing decrease in the Dutch bee population since 1940. The bee population decline is still not solved in the countryside and more needs doing to help the bees survive in land that is dominated by bee unfriendly agriculture. But it's happy news that they seem to be doing better in the cities. That's very happy news. When you said bee census... I was imagining them having to fill in forms saying like, what job do you do? How would you describe your ethnicity? Um, so I'm glad that it's simpler than that. If you enjoyed our Halloumi episode, you may enjoy seeing Dominic on our Instagram page at Europeans Podcast with a massive stack of Halloumi packets under his chin, which I think you were bought by our producer Cats. as like a late birthday present. Yes, thank you, Cats. Amazing gift. Um, have you eaten nothing but halloumi over the past week? Actually, I haven't started yet. It's lucky that halloumi lasts quite a while. I need to get going and come up with loads of different combinations for them. Keep us updated with how that goes on our Instagram stories, please, Dominic. If you're not on Instagram, fear not. We are also on Twitter at EuropeansPod and Facebook at EuropeansPodcast. We also love receiving emails, so you can get in touch. Hello at EuropeansPodcast.com. Big thanks to our producers this week, Andre Popovicu, Priyanka Shankar and Katz Laszlo. The music you heard is by the wonderful Jim Barn and Mariska Martina.
This podcast is a member of the Are We Europe family. You can find more like-minded podcasts uh, at the link in the show notes. We have so many credits these days. It's starting to sound a little bit like This American Life. So we will be back next week for more tales of this European life. Dewey. À la prochaine. <laughs>